Hello fellow history nerds and welcome to the Bold Historian Podcast. This is episode 4, The Danes Return. The Danish Armada set sail in the summer of 1069 and landed sometime between the two feasts of St Mary, which occurred on the 15th of August and the 8th of September. It seems the Danes followed the route of their old Viking ancestors by raiding their way up the east coast of England from East Anglia to the River Humber. Here they were joined by their English allies, Edgar Atheling, Earl Gospatrick and Melswing. With Edgar Atheling involved, there appears to be a conflict of interest between the ambition of both Edgar and Svein, who both sought to become king of the English. However, Svein did not partake in this invasion. Command of his army was given to his brother, Asbjorn. The English rebels were in a jubilant mood, and the days of Norman rule in England appeared to be numbered. William was hunting in the Forest of Dean in Gloucestershire when he heard news of the Danish invasion and the raiding along the east coast. He sent messengers to York to coordinate a defensive plan of action. The garrisons in and around York sent a reply back to William, stating they could not hold out, stating they could hold out under a siege for one year. However, upon realising the true size of the Danish army, the garrisons soon changed their tune. The defenders of York burnt down the houses that lay just beyond the walls of York. They did this out of fear that the attacking Danes could utilise the timber in attempts to bridge the defensive moat that encircled the city, and inevitably the fire spread out of control and more or less engulfed the whole city. The Danes arrived at York two days later and the fires were still burning. However, this did not stop the defenders of York sallying out to engage the Danes. However, they suffered a major defeat. It is reported more than 3,000 Normans died in the battle, and two castles were destroyed by the Danes, and York itself was plundered. Following this, the Danes re-embarked upon their ships. So, when William raised an army and marched upon York, he found the Danes had abandoned the city, and no Danish garrison was left in York. So it seems at this time the Danes were not seeking a battle with William, which is rather odd considering the whole point of the invasion was to dethrone William and put Sven on the throne. The Danes had crossed the Humber and entered Lincolnshire and set about camping in and around the Isle of Axholme, an inaccessible marshy area. Unfortunately for William, several rebellions reared up in England at this time. Montague Castle was being besieged by men from Dorset and Somerset, and again Exeter was under siege from men of Devon and Cornwall. But a more serious uprising took place in Shrewsbury, seemingly led by Edric the Wild, whom we met in a previous episode. To counter this, William sent his close friend, William Fitzosborne and Count Brian of Cornwall, to deal with the Shrewsbury Rebellion. And upon hearing of the approaching Norman army, the rebels scattered, but not before setting Shrewsbury ablaze. So at this time, William and the Normans were being pulled in all different directions. So from Shrewsbury, the Normans headed southwest, and once they reached Exeter, the rebels regrouped at Shrewsbury. King William finally decided to deal with the Shrewsbury Rebellion in person. He left his brother Robert in charge of dealing with the Danes up north, and William eventually defeated the rebels at Stafford. It is said that many people, combatants and non-combatants alike, were killed or left in a miserable condition. The king then began to march on Lincolnshire, 
and there he learned the Danes had once again disappeared, and they had most likely travelled to York. So the Danes were proven rather elusive for William. So the Normans attempted to cross the River Eyre on their way to York, but were denied, as the bridge they were meant to cross was broken, and this was most likely a deliberate act of sabotage by the Danes. And according to the historian Mark Morris, in his book The Norman Conquest, this is the earliest reference to Pontefract in Yorkshire, and Pontefract means broken bridge. So it took another three weeks for the Normans to find another place upstream to cross at, and as they crossed the River Eyre, they came under attack from the defending Danes. Yet they managed to march upon York, expecting to find the Danes entrenched within the city. However, the elusive Danes were nowhere to be seen. So this reaffirms the thought the Danes did not want to meet William in battle, at least not yet. But they were still in England and seemed unlikely to leave. One possibility is that they were waiting for their king, Sven, to join them the following year. So William was stuck in a bind. His solution was to bribe the commander of the Danish army, Earl Asbjorn, the king's brother, to leave England for the end of winter. But William gave him permission to forage along the coast. And William then left a the garrison in York and gave out orders to rebuild the castles the Danes destroyed. He then split his army into smaller groups to spread out and find the rebels, flushing them out of their hiding places. And as part of his plan to defeat the rebels, William implemented a scorched earth policy. And this policy was carried out north of the Humber. And the intention behind this was to ensure no army, English or Danish, could survive in the north. And this policy was so effective that 100,000 people, men, women and children, died of starvation. And to put this into context, the population of England at the time was 2 million. And this famine was so severe that people resorted to eating horses, dogs, cats and even human flesh. Such was the desperation. This episode was known as the Harrying of the North, a most infamous episode of the Norman Conquest and indeed English history. So William and his army pursued rebels across North Yorkshire all the way to the River Tees and Durham. Some rebels, such as Earl Gospatrick, reaffirmed his obedience to William. However, he did not do this in person. He sent proxies in his place. But Merlswain and Edgar Atheling most likely fled back to Scotland. After spending time in York to re-establish order and authority and to rebuild the castles, William journeyed to Mercia to deal with the remaining rebels. The siege of Shrewsbury was lifted and more harrying most likely occurred in this area and two more castles were raised at Chester and Stafford in an attempt to restore order and authority. So, after roughly two years, the English uprisings had been quashed, at least William thought. So, a result of the harrying was a famine that lasted into 1070, and tens of thousands of people had perished, and this was a result of William's scorched earth policy. And this was such a harrowing episode even some of William's men had begun to feel the effects of the constant campaigning in horrid conditions. It also must have had a negative impact on their mental health, especially having to cope with the seemingly never-ending killing and destruction they inflicted upon the English, and indeed were also on the receiving end themselves. Orderic Vitalis wrote later that the men of Anjou, Brittany and Maine complained loudly they were grievously burdened with intolerable duties and repeatedly asked the king to discharge them from his service. And it is likely that their mutiny in William's army was becoming increasingly possible. 
There were desertions, to which William responded and called these men idle cowards and weaklings. It's important to note medieval Europe was a harsh place to live, with many atrocities being carried out. So again, after the rebellions, William had plenty of spare land to dish out to his supporters, and much land was confiscated from English nobles, including Edgar Atheling and Maleswin. However, Gospatrick, who offered his fealty again to William, had his lands restored to him in January 1070. And to note, the confiscated lands of Edgar Atheling and Maleswin were awarded to a Norman called Ralph Pagnall. By the end of William's campaign, land given to loyal followers was in abundance. However, the same cannot be said of money. The problem William had was that not all of his soldiers wanted land, and would rather be rewarded with money, something tangible they could take with them back to the continent. So in order to keep his troops happy, William decided to raid the monasteries of England for hidden money and valuables stashed there by English nobles. And as we know, William was a very pious man. So this act of feathery from the church just shows how desperate William was to retain the troops within his army. So at Easter in 1070, William was re-crowned as King of the English in Winchester. And this was most likely done as a reaffirmation of his authority over England, following the many rebellions within the last couple of years. And William asked the Pope for support, and the Pope sent a legation to England which consisted of two cardinals and a bishop. And William requested papal support, in a way, for atonement for the harsh and brutal campaign he carried out. A large amount of people had been killed during the Norman Conquest, especially in the past year, and William decided he needed to atone for this. And as mentioned earlier, many troops of Williams did decide to return home to the continent due to the scale of the atrocities inflicted in England. Another reason for the legation to visit England was the reformation of the English church. And this was due to take place shortly after the conquest, but had been postponed due to the constant uprisings. As we know, William sought papal support for his Hastings campaign and to be crowned as King of the English. And in return, William promised the Pope that if he became King of the English, he would enact reforms within the English Church. And this reformation was not the same as Henry VIII's reformation. The reform included the replacement of the bishops of Winchester and Windsor, amongst others, and also the replacement of many abbots across the country. And these men who were replaced were replaced by Normans. So in medieval Europe, there were two main pillars of society. The first main pillar were the secular rulers, i.e. emperors, kings, queens and dukes. And the second main pillar was the church. So following the Norman conquest, William and the Normans were in charge of England's government. And now they were taking up positions within the English church with the Pope's full support. And by 1070, out of the 15 bishops in England, only three Englishmen remained. The Normans had well and truly cemented their power and authority in England, controlling both pillars of society. And now this control was in place, William even began to impose military service upon the church. Due to the numerous castles built in England since the conquest, there was a need to man them. To be able to do this effectively, William had to pay his mercenaries, and this was done in part by taxing the church, which was now a legal requirement put in place by the king. So as we can see, a feudal type system was now being implemented in England, as was done so by William in Normandy years before. And the church also had to provide manpower to garrison these castles. 
For example, the Abbey of Eloy in Cambridgeshire was obligated to provide knights for the land they held from the king to provide guard duty at Windsor Castle. And due to the fact the Danes were still roaming the east coast of England, the castles in this area had to be garrisoned. And furthermore, in May 1070, King Sven of Denmark arrived in England, ready to claim his throne from William. And there he met up with his brother, Asbjorn, at the mouth of the River Humber, where the Danish fleet was laying at anchor. And the English, who lived in and around the Humber, greeted Sven with wonder and joy. But shortly after Sven landed, Asbjorn moved south into East Anglia and seized the town of Eli. And here, the people in the Fenlands, in Norfolk and Suffolk, and Cambridgeshire welcomed the Danes with open arms. And this was because the north of England and East Anglia had a rich Danish ancestry. As we focus on East Anglia, we will meet one prominent Anglo-Saxon, and his name was Hereward the Wake. There has been much written about Hereward, but most of this has been fantastical exaggerations, and many stories include the presence of witches, princesses, and monsters. Counting princesses aside, this is clearly not historically accurate. And from the little we know about Hereward, we know that he was a nobleman in exile at the time of the Norman Conquest. And he returned to England in 1066 to discover his brother had been killed and the family estates had been seized. And Hereward entered the historical records in 1070 and by this time he was already classed as an outlaw. And as we can see, Hereward clearly had reason to rise up against William the same reason many English noblemen did the same. Confiscation of the family's estates. So William was now facing a new threat. Another Anglo-Saxon rebel was acting in concert with the invading Danish. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of The World Story. Join me in the next episode. We will find out more about Hereward and his alliance with the Danes and how King William reacted to this new threat in East Anglia. And I hope you'll join me again in episode 5. Goodbye.